You're listening to TIP. Since public markets have existed, there have been occurrences where new and existing owners fight for control of the business. In many cases, these boardroom disputes are resolved with marginal friction. But sometimes, these corporate raiders and takeovers result in dramatic changes and intense learning experiences. Today, we have an incredible guest on the show, and his name is Jeff Graham. Jeff owns his own hedge fund and is also an adjunct professor at Columbia Business School, where he teaches Benjamin Graham and Buffett-style value investing. Jeff is the author of the book, Dear Chairman, which is an incredible account of some of the biggest boardroom disputes and battles that have happened in America. He profiles boardroom battles from investors like Benjamin Graham, Buffett, Ross Perot, Carl Icahn, and many others. In the middle of the interview, we asked Jeff about this interesting story that happened to him where Warren Buffett actually mailed a signed copy of his own book and let him know how much he enjoyed reading it. We wanted to do an episode about shareholder activism. In other words, what do you do if you're not satisfied with the management in the company that you own stock in? And to do this, we talked with Jeff. And Jeff has studied the best investors out there and how they practice shareholder activism. So we look at the learning outcomes from that but also what you can do as a retail investor if you're not happy about the management. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Fantastic to have everyone with us this week. As we said in the introduction there, we are with Jeff Graham, the author of Dear Chairman, and the book is all about boardroom battles and the rise of shareholder activism. Stig and I both read this book. We loved this thing. Jeff, your writing is fantastic. We are thrilled to have you here on the show. So really appreciate your time coming out. Well, thanks for having me, guys. So, Jeff, I'm going to start off by asking, because the book is is different than a lot of uh, investing books that we write, because it's very focused, and it's telling the story of what it's like to be inside some of these boardrooms and see what some of these battles that take place. So my first question for you is, you know, what gave you the inspiration or the motivation to go out and write a book like this one? You know, just tell us that story. What What motivated you to write this? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like, my initial idea for the book was just to collect activist investor letters and to basically, you know, compile them into a book and perhaps like provide a little bit of commentary, but, you know, you know, basically to make it a compilation. Like, uh, you know, I teach investing at uh, Columbia on the side and like as a part of that, I, you know, have collected like a lot of these um, activist letters and I, and, and I give them to my students. Uh, for readings. And so that's the way that the idea began. And, you know, it ultimately uh, turned into a history book, you know, to um, a narrative history that, uh, you know, revolves around these eight cases with, you know, Ross Perot and GM and, and Ben Graham and, and the Northern Pipeline Company, you know, with Buffett American Express. You know, like it is a narrow topic, right? I mean, you know, shareholder activism is not uh, something that that lots of people, you know, care too much about. And, you know, I tell this history, but, you know, but I try to use that as a launching point, you know, for broader discussions about business. You know, I have to admit, having read through the book, the stories about Ross Perot, and whenever he got a seat on the board, 
I, dude, those were so funny. Like listening to some of the stories and like the stupidity that he had to put up with whenever he was on the board. Uh, the history of GM is just incredibly rich, right? And so there, uh, to be able to kind of like to tell the story of the of the rise of GM, then the decline of GM, and then the involvement of Perot, it gave me the opportunity to to impart like a lot of business lessons and to use these extremely you know entertaining people like of Ross Perot in the process of doing it. Yeah, and Jeff, I think that's a good segue to a next question because basically what we learn and how it should be is that managements, they're representing the shareholders' interest. But as you point out multiple times in your book, you really reveal how hard it is to enforce this in practice. The management have multiple tactics to discourage takeovers from activist investors. Could you take us through some of the mechanisms about them? I'm specifically thinking about the poison pills and the green mail that you, uh, that you mentioned a few times in your book. And uh, perhaps also tell a, a story about how one of your, your activists in your book faced these challenges. Sure. I mean, it's interesting because like with takeovers is that the management often loses their job, right? You can have a situation where it is in the shareholder's interest to, like, uh, to sell the company, but the management is you know, strongly opposed to it. So um, yeah, like the two mechanisms that you brought up. So there's Green mail, which is essentially when the company, you know, buys out the activist investor. And so in the old days, like Carl Icahn will came to your door and is like, I own, well, 9% of the company and I'm going to, you know, we'll push you into a sale process. What the company would often do, and in fact, like in Icahn's, you know, first, you know, 12 or so investments, I think that this happened over five times, is they just, you know, will bought out his particular stake at a like at a big premium, you know, so the stock could be trading at $20 and the management and company would essentially be like, Hey, we'll pay you 35 bucks, you know, a share for your stake. And then like you go away. And if you think about that, that's like incredibly unfair to the other shareholders, right? It's like, you're basically taking like the company's cash to overpay for shares to entrench the management team. You know, so a uh, green mail is now like it's not uh, technically e- um, illegal, but it's a, like it's essentially been outlawed, you know, well, through changes in the tax rules and also just like uh, the liability aspects of it. The poison pill is, you know, very much around still. It's um, now the poison pill is a, is a mechanism for preventing a shareholder from crossing a particular uh, threshold of ownership. So. Um, and lots of companies that can be, you know, at 5, 10, 15, or 20%, where if a shareholder goes over to, you know, uh, that threshold, if they cross uh, 10%, then there's a triggering event that causes a dilution of only that shareholder's uh, stake. And it's a very controversial thing. Like a lot of activists think that like, essentially it's a, it's a legal mechanism that allows for, you know, what's effectively a change in corporate law. But the poison pill, like it's not always against the shareholders' interest to have the poison pill in place. And, th- and there's actually a case that I talk about where I owned 30% of a public company and the stock was extremely undervalued and I was continuing to buy. And the board of directors uh, decided to put in a poison pill to prevent you know, me from buying more shares. 
as an activist in that stock, it was very frustrating because I wanted to buy more. But at the same time, uh, there was a very clear argument that keeping you know me from getting to fifty percent at a bargain price like is in the shareholders' interest. Now, um, I would argue that like I'm a good guy, and if I get to fifty percent, like I'm not gonna you know screw people over. But you know, not all activist investors are like that. So, Jeff, when you whenever you say that in your example, you said if they get over ten percent, then the sh- shares get diluted. Are you specifically talking about the dilution of the voting rights? No, it's like it's the ownership rights too. I, I mean, like it depends. Like you know, there's a lot of ways to structure the poison pill, but now, like the way they are typically structured is like they're called a rights agreement, and if a shareholder crosses the threshold, you know, so let's use 10% as an example. So say I want to buy a public company, like if I like I'm trying to buy into Target, and if they have a poison pill at 10%, like if I accidentally will cross that 10%, if I'm not, you know, paying attention, and I get to, you know, to 11%, it triggers um, an issue of rights to buy more shares for everyone except for me. And so basically, I just get completely diluted depending on the ratios in the rights agreement. But it basically means that, that I can't do it. Like if I cross that 10%, it, like it decreases uh, the value of, like of my stake. Hey, so Jeff, I've heard that you uh, received a signed copy of your book from the one and only Warren Buffett. And Buffett signed your book. I, correct me if I'm wrong on this. So first tell, us, <laughs> first, tell us the story of getting this pleasant surprise, but also talk to us about the story uh, you tell in the book about Warren Buffett and his unpopular way of dealing with the board at Coca-Cola. It was A lot of people were not happy with the way he, he dealt with the board, but uh, it was a very elegant way. And I, I really like the way that you described this in your book, because I think you gave him a lot of credit where uh, other people weren't. Yeah, like I just got it like a couple months ago. Like I got to work and there was like that book in the mail. Yeah, yeah. So he wrote like a very nice note on the front. And then he also uh, put a note in the acknowledgments, you know, where I talked about him. I mean, it's a funny story, actually. Like I, um, like, you know, when I finished the book, I had sent him a copy. And I remember as we were doing the, just like the pre-release I wanted to to send one to uh, to Carol Loomis. I'm like a very big fan of hers, and I tried to like to track down her contact info through friends, you know. But she had had retired from Fortune, and and I think I emailed her her Fortune email, and it bounced back. So I just decided to email her Berkshire, you know, email that's in the annual letter, like you know, for questions at the annual meeting. So like I like I sent her this email. Hey, like I wrote this book. Like I'd love to send it to you. And I think that like she checks that extremely infrequently. So like a month or so later, I got this email from Carol Loomis and it was like, oh, um, apologize about the slow reply. Like I just got email. Like I've actually already got your book because um, like it was highly recommended to me by Warren Buffett. Oh my God. I mean, I was just like the rest of the day, like I was on like on cloud nine and this was, you know, this was October before the release date in February. And so I was just like, oh man, like like this is it like like I don't have to do anything like if he likes it and talks about it then well people will you know you know will find out about it and so like I got that email and 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 I just thought I'm home free you know well Buffett likes it and then nothing happened like I never like like he never talked about it like it didn't get picked for bookworm and then uh, Carol actually asked a question about the book at at the meeting the next year 
And like he, you know, will give it like a great answer, but he didn't, you know, say, oh, that's a good book, you know. So then I began to question, well, like, does he actually like this book? It's interesting because like, you know, when you put out a like a book, like it sits around for a long time. There's a lot of time to kind of, you know, think about the possibilities. And I for sure thought, well, maybe he'll talk about it like in public and I'll get like the Buffett bounce. And, you know, like that never did happen. But the whole thing like has been extremely fun. That's awesome. I can only imagine how fun it would be to hear that somebody like Buffett endorses your book. And just so the audience knows, Jeff's book is not just being endorsed by Buffett and Carol Loomis. You got Andrew Sorkin, who's endorsed the book. You got Alan Greenspan, who's endorsed the book. You got Charles Schwab, who's endorsed your book. So you got a lot of heavy hitters in your corner, my friend. You know, like like in a funny way, those endorsements, like they don't actually you know, move that many copies, you know? So the key is just like to, like to, like got to try to like to get out there and to get the book out there. But let me tell you about the Coca-Cola thing too. Like uh, I neglected uh, the second half of your question. Coca-Cola agreed uh, to this, you know, well, compensation plan for its, you know, well, senior management that was pretty egregious in the eyes of shareholders. And like you saw some shareholders get extremely angry um, about it you know, we'll vote against it, you know, go public about it. And Buffett, who was, you know, um, had been on the board, like his kid was on the board at the time. He was, I think, yeah, like the largest, you know, shareholder, did not publicly um, oppose the plan. He just called the CEO and explained like, hey, like this is like a little bit too like aggressive, like on the conversation. And um, the following year, they replaced that plan. So like um, it never got enacted. Carl Icahn was extremely um, offended by that tactic. Uh, he basically feels like, look, we're too nice to management team. If a guy like, you know, well, Buffett, who's like the biggest, you know, shareholder and like was on the board like a long time, uh, so much of investing and being in, like in business in general is about like your personality and, you know, like you tailor your tactics like to what, you know, what works with your personality. And I just think that's like the way that like uh, the Buffett operates. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? 
What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. I think it's an interesting point that you bring up about matching your, your personality with your investment style. And I think there's a reason why you have some people that are value investors and other people call them growth investors and whatnot. Because I remember Preston and I reading the books from, actually one of them was, was about Carl Icahn. I think the, the name of the book was King Icon. And then we also read the um, T1 Pickens book. And I just remember reading through those books and it's like, these two gentlemen, they must just be miserable. Like the way they approached other people. And, you know, having you say that, you're probably right. Perhaps it was the only way for them to get there where they are today because that's just how they handle things. That is what they're consistent with. They probably couldn't use Warren Buffett's tactics, just like Warren Buffett couldn't use their tactics in terms of getting what they wanted. Well, you know, what I really liked about how you presented it in the book Jeff was Buffett was able to get exactly what he wanted from the deal, but he went about it in a in a much more indirect way. And I think that it talks about his finesse, his business finesse that so many people don't have. Because in the long run, whenever he wants to do something again in the future, five, 10 years later, he's going to still have that connection in place. He didn't burn that bridge. He still has that connection in place to achieve what it is that he wants to do. And whereas so many people would have been short-sighted or would have only been looking at something in the in the short term in the way that they handled the situation and it would have totally burnt that bridge for for future engagements later on. And that's you know, I really learned a lot from your book reading that specific section because I remember when this Coca-Cola thing went down. In fact, I think Stig and I were out at the shareholders meeting when everybody was I mean, they were beating them up that year over this question of how... Yeah, there were lots of questions about that. Yeah, they were... People were... I mean, tons of questions. Why did you vote this way? And 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 during the meeting, you didn't get a sense that he handled it appropriately. But the way you described it in the book and the way that you explained why he acted the way he did and what he actually achieved in the end, I'd never read that or seen that anywhere else. So I I really gained a lot of value out of that in, in your description in the book. It was very good. My next question is also about Warren Buffett. And I just want to point out there that Jeff's book, there's a lot of stories about different shareholder activists and specific approaches, but it probably comes as no surprise that the investor that Preston and I have really been focusing on here would be Warren Buffett. But back to the question, contrary to many other shareholder activists, whenever he bought into American Express, he didn't ask for board seats or for the management to unlock dividends. 
His key concern was rather that those swindled in the so-called salad oil scandal would be paid back in full. So, Jeff, could you please tell us the story about the salad oil scandal and Warren Buffett's special role? Sure, sure. You know, and there's also some um, historical context out there, which I'm sure that like your listeners will know that, like before the mid 1960s, you know, well Buffett was very much an activist investor, like bought these, you know, well, you know, cigar butts and like would get on the board and like would advocate like for change. It was a real, you know, well turning point when he put a quarter of his a fund in American Express because it was just like a great a franchise and he thought like that the management like, you know, was you know, mostly doing the right things. Now, like the swindle is a pretty fascinating financial fraud. Like, you know, so at the time, um, American Express had had their two core businesses. They had the charge card business that was new and growing, and it had the traveler's checks, what businesses, which was like a fabulous business, like a mature business, but like you got like some float out of it. It had like incredible returns. But they also had this thing called a field warehousing business. And in that business, they you know, would essentially guarantee the, the inventory of companies. You know? So there is this a company called Allied Crude Vegetable Oil. They would distribute uh, soybean oil because of the, of the shadiness of the CEO, this guy, uh, Tino DeAngelis, who was like a known fraudster with connections to you know organized crime they uh, they couldn't even open a, like a bank account and so they had a hard time uh, with borrowing uh, money and so they used like um, American Express like to verify you know their inventory so they could borrow like against this you know well verified you know by American Express inventory and the inventory was these huge big tanks in Bayonne New Jersey that you know were supposed to be uh, filled to the brim with soybean oil, but were actually filled with seawater. <laughs> and this guy Tino uh, perpetrated this big scam uh, where uh, um, American Express would um, essentially uh, write him these receipts to verify the, the inventory. He would use those receipts um, you know, to open uh, brokerage accounts and to borrow cash. American Express had guaranteed over a billion pounds of soybean oil more than existed in the whole country on paper. And, you know, they were um, on the hook for a huge amount of money at the time. I think it was about $80 million. That was potentially crippling to Amex. It was particularly uh, damaging to the stock because at the time it was like a joint stock company. It was, well, not um, a limited liability company. So if you owned a shares of American Express and it turned out that they had, like, that they go bust and they have, you know, well, excess uh, liabilities, like, then you, as the shareholder of American Express, could be assessed for those liabilities. And so, I mean, all these, like, well, pension funds that owned, like, American Express were panicked and sold out. And so it was a great buying opportunity for Buffett. Like, the way that, that he saw it was, look, this is an incredible franchise. They made this big mistake. They're going to pay for it, but the value is there and like a long-term well, compounding machine. But what happened is a collection of shareholders decided to, to get active with American Express. And they said, well, the warehousing business like was at a subsidiary of American Express. And you could file this thing for bankruptcy 
and not pay these liabilities, then the shareholders would be better off. And Buffett was extremely concerned about this, and he wrote this letter to the chairman of, of American Express that was like, I'm a very big shareholder. Um, I bought this uh, stake, well, not because I thought that you would blow off these liabilities, but because of the long-term value that I see in your franchise. The claimants in this fraud were these like huge you know, financial institutions like the Bank of America. And you know, well, Buffett saw that if you hose all these claimants, it's going to damage the, the American Express brand. And so he offered to testify in court that American Express that it was in their interest like to pay these liabilities and that like the activists you know well shareholders like were being extremely short-sighted I really love this story and it really tells you something about the development of Warren Buffett you also mentioned that you know he started off as an activist and I guess this was also some sort of an activist play but something that Carl Akon would do would be to like see if he can take control because as an investor you might have the idea that if you are in charge, you are the one who are making the best decisions. But that was, that was not his focus at all. That was basically just to make sure that reputation was intact and then that the value of the company be the driver or the catalyst for it to reach its intrinsic value once again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a neat case because like, it's clearly a turning point in, in his career. Like It's a beginning of, of his uh, transition to good franchises. So, Jeff, I can't help but think, now we know how much Warren Buffett is struggling, Kyle Icahn, Ross Perot, and they have millions, if not billions of dollars behind them whenever they're trying to influence the management. What can a retail investor do to unlock shareholder value? Say that you only own 100 shares of a stock, but still you're not happy with the management. What do you do? You know, that's, that's a very good question. And I mean, in theory... You know, there should not be complete, you know, disenfranchisement of the small investor. You can put out, you know, with shareholder proposals. There are these, well, big, well, passive institutions that, like, are thoughtful about them. And if you have a good idea, in theory, they could support it. In practice, that's, you know, you know, well, really not what happens. There, it's incredibly rare that you see, like, essentially a retail investor have an impact on governance. Like the one, like the that pops uh, to mind for me is uh, there was a shareholder in uh, in Virginia Dominion Power who was I think that she was a NASA engineer and she uh, did a shareholder proposal like about sustainable energy practices at like at the company and it got well, well broad support from the big institutions I think to the tune of over ten billion dollars of, of of a market value but that was you know well, very much the exception like I think. The dirty truth is that a corporate America is increasingly controlled by a very a concentrated investor base, and it was extremely concentrated in, like in the twenties. It uh, diffused into the nineteen fifties, but a beginning in the sixties, it began to reconcentrate, and that you know like, um, has only uh, continued to happen. So it's incredibly hard for a retail investor to like to do anything about a company where they think that. Uh, the governance like is bad. I mean, if you are a shareholder of, of 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 a company and you're extremely displeased with like the decisions that they're making, like your best bet like to intervene is like to call the big you know the big shareholders and to try to get them on the phone and to make their you know to make your case. But if that doesn't work, then I think that like you have to consider selling. You know, which is you know very tragic. 
for people that are listening to the show that might not know this, so Jeff came to our live event that we had in New York City. He was on the panel with us with Toby Carlisle and Wes Gray. And one of the things that came out during the panel discussion was that Jeff's fund that he runs is a very focused portfolio. So he doesn't have a lot of picks in his portfolio, very similar to the way that Buffett has invested through the years as he has a very focused number of companies that he selects. So Jeff, I've got a hard question for you. So whenever I look at a guy like Bill Ackman, who is also implements this Buffett style approach, who has a very focused portfolio, he had a just a terrible last year. I mean, it was you know a disaster. When you think about that and you see guys like Ackman go down and just have a, a horrific year, a lot of people say that that's because they had such a focused portfolio and they didn't have a lot of stocks. We uh, had a discussion with uh, Guy Spear very early on whenever we did our podcast. And the one thing that we asked Guy, we said, hey, what did you learn from the 2008 crash? And Guy said, I was way too focused in only a couple companies and I paid the price for that. How do you how do you feel when you see guys like this? What are your thoughts and opinions on that? You know, why do you think that that's a better approach for you personally? I'm just kind of curious to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, I mean, I, like, I do think it goes back to that thing like that we were talking about with the dispositional fit, like of you and your strategy. You know, just like the way that I invest, like I'm extremely well focused on downside risk, and I, like like and I look for the rare situations where like like I think I'm completely protected on the downside. I'm not always uh, you know correct about that, but it, like it's just been the way that works you know for me. It's like to have like the ten or fifteen positions uh, that I can be completely on top of, and you know. But you're completely right. Like the concentration is incredibly dangerous, and. Buffett is, you know, well, kind of the exception, like that proves like the rule that it's like incredibly hard to do it over like a long career because it's, you know, well, too easy to blow yourself up. And I think the main danger is, you know, with value investing, it's, you know, so much about like, like avoiding the big mistakes, you know, you know, keeping sane. The problem with concentration is like when you have a super big position in your portfolio. It's easy to get emotional about it. It's easier to be attached to it. It's easier to have confirmation bias. So sure, the return, you know, can be magnified if you're right. Like that's like what everyone, you know, thinks about. But like all of the psychological, you know, forces against you are magnified if you have like a, like, you know, a 20%, you know, position in like in one stock. And that's extremely dangerous. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in over 20 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T dot com. Corient dot com. As someone who's constantly on the road and traveling, 
Briggs & Riley has been a game changer that ensures my travel experience is phenomenal. I'm a satisfied customer of Briggs & Riley myself, and I can certainly tell you that their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, it has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they'll repair it free of charge, no questions asked, even if your airline damages the bag. They also just released their Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It has this new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, then compress it to its original size so a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, plus many other cool features. If you want luggage that was awarded the best carry-on by Forbes, then now's the time to get it. Get your new and improved luggage at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash business gold card. All right, back to the show. Jeff, I got a question for you because I've thought a lot about this. Do you find that businesses that have an individual, specifically a founder, that retains a very large chunk of the voting rights of the business have a tendency to perform better moving forward than something that has the ownership rights just spread out to low uh, levels, like 1% or less? Do you find that those types of businesses do better when you have that that person that's still kind of steering the ship and saying, hey, this is the direction the business needs to go. They've got that sense of what the customer wants. They understand competitive advantage and all this stuff. And they're not just trying to keep the shareholders, the employees, and the customer happy all at the same time. Like I find that whenever you when you see a business that has a very focused control of equity, specifically with a founder, they seem to be much more customer and employee focused and don't really care too much about the shareholders, which I think in the end actually takes care of the shareholders better than when a person tries to balance all three of those. Yeah. I mean, I think that's like a fascinating question and I haven't, you know, looked at it in a scientific way. Pocket of the, of the market that I focus on, which is, you know, well, very small companies like the microcap world, well, more often than not, Founder-controlled companies are problematic. Like they're often, you know, vehicles for self-dealing. And I think if you look at well, well, bonanza outcomes, like the very successful, that you do see lots of these, you know, well, founder-run companies. But I think there, like, are fewer of those out there, like than you know, you know, what people think. And there are lots of classic founders who took their companies up public and then began to kind of like to milk it for their own benefit. So this part of time in the show, Jeff, we would like to ask you what your favorite book recommendation is. And I'm really excited to ask this question of you since you have a value investing background. Sure. Really loved uh, Joel Greenblatt's can be a stock market genius. And like it came at a time in my life where like I didn't, you know, will know a lot about investing. And sure, like it taught me like about the spinoffs and the restructurings and like the so-called uh, hiding places in the market that that he talks about, but but you know, but it more gives you this you know well, mindset that there are bargains out there. That book 
is incredibly good at uh, you know well, debunking the idea of efficient markets, like without like requiring a whole lot of discussion like on that, and then expressing the kind of the treasure hunter mindset of buying a fifty cent dollar. I've read lots of investment books, and it's hard to convey you know those lessons. And, and I think that a Joel Greenblatt did that extremely well with that book, and I think it holds up still. So this is this is hilarious because even the title of the book, we're used to saying the title. So we think that it's normal that the book's title is you can be a stock market genius too. So I'm in my house and I've got, you know, these these library shelves of all of my books that I've read. And I'm trying to find this specific book because I'm trying to look something up that's in that book. And so I asked my wife, I said, Hey, can you help me find a book? And she says, yeah, what's the title of it? And so I, tell, <laughs> I tell my wife, you can be a stock market genius. And she literally looked at me and just burst out laughing. She goes, what's the, what's the actual name of the book? And she didn't even believe that that was the title of the book. Well, I, well you know that like, is actually, that's like the paperback title. Like, you know the original title? It's a, you can be a stock market genius even if you're not that smart. <laughs> oh my god <laughs> so they changed oh. that one. <laughs> oh my gosh well you know what you can't argue with the facts and the facts is that that's a phenomenal book i mean if if anybody listening to this hasn't read that one man you're missing out okay jeff uh we want people to uh know where they can find you uh tell them your twitter handle tell them the name of your book and where they can find it uh let them know where they can learn more about you sure uh the book is called dear chairman uh, boardroom battles and the rise of uh, shareholder activism. I'm doing a, like a lot of events in the coming year. Like I'm going to London. I'm going to Australia. I'm doing a lot in the U.S. I am on Twitter, Jeff underscore Graham, uh, G R A M M. I think I met you guys through Twitter, so like it adds value. <laughs> you absolutely did. In fact, one of our one of our uh, followers on Twitter said, "You got to read this book. It's fabulous." And uh, that's how we got hooked up. So. Jeff, such a pleasure having you on the show. We really valued all your input and uh, really enjoyed your book. Thank you for taking time out of your day to come on the Investors Podcast. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. All right, guys. That was all that Preston and I had for this week's episode of the Investors Podcast. We see each other again next week. Thanks for listening to TIP. To access the show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. To get your questions played on the show, go to asktheinvestors.com and win a free subscription to any of our courses on TIP Academy. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making investment decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the TIP Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. Be a